Hey everyone, this is Dark Days Radio, episode number 60. I'm, of course, one of your hosts, Mike, and tonight I'm joined by Chris. How's it going, Chris? Hello. Um, good, yeah, I'm fine. Uh, I've got nothing more to say other than painting toy soldiers and reading uh, Flowers of Hell currently. Oh, right on, right on. And, of course, joining us straight out from Texas is, of course, Chig. How's it going, Chig? Going great, Mike. How you doing? Oh, I'm I'm good. Thanks for asking. Uh, you know, doing a little gaming, playing a little Dungeons and Dragons, uh, which yeah. I did I did not expect to be doing. But are you are you enjoying Fifth Edition? Uh, I enjoy it more than Fourth Edition. That's and, a uh, a low bar to clear. And I enjoy <laughs> it more than Third Edition. So that's that's good. That's something. Yeah, that's good. Uh, overall, it seems like it's uh, it's streamlined a lot of things that I did not really enjoy about uh maybe maybe third edition uh you know it gets rid of feats so you don't have to worry about that and that sort of uh min maxing mini game that you had to play and really just kind of focuses on giving you your character and boom there you go start playing my uh, only experience of third edition was running uh etherscope uh which is the d20 system and it uh yeah it's just not the ideal game system for that type of game all right all right but joining us on the mics tonight is someone who's uh you know very special to the to the gaming industry a legend who's been uh working uh editing and doing game design for a number of years and that's michelle lyons mcfarland how's it going michelle it's going great. Thank you so much. That's an awesome intro. I'm I'm so like moved. Um but but I'm really it's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Um I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you both. Thank you all. No problem, no problem. But just to get started, Michelle, cuz we're in the kind of intro segment. What kind of gaming are you doing right now? Are you running any games or playing in any? Um, well, right now I am kind of taking a small step back because I have my doctoral exams this month. Um oh. So, so that's I'm I'm a little less gamey than I usually am. Um, I'm currently uh, helping to play test uh, Promethean Second Edition, um, mm-hmm. and I'm playing in a game of Monster Hearts. Um, and I had been playing as well in sort of a Pirates slash Warehouse Thirteen Savage Worlds kind of mishmash thing, um, but that recently ended. Um, so that's kind of what I've got going on at the moment. Pirates and Warehouse 13. That sounds pretty <laughs> intriguing. Uh, can you give us a couple more details about it? Sure. So um, a friend of mine, uh, Matthew Carafa, was running this. And basically the idea was that we had two sets of characters in two separate timelines. And we had pirates who would go out and find artifacts and steal them, like you do when you're a pirate. Mm-hmm. And then we'd have the modern-day Warehouse 13 team that would go and have to locate the artifact and figure out what was going on with it. So so we would alternate timelines. It ran really well. It was a lot of fun. Hmm. That might have some bearings on our secret frequency for uh, for tonight, so that could be pretty interesting. 
All right. Cool. Sounds good. All right, so I think that's some good uh, introduction right there. So let's quickly move on over to World of Darkness News. Okay, so Onyx Path has been pretty busy, and they've got some new books out. Of note, there's a Kickstarter going on for the 20th anniversary uh, Vampire the Dark Ages book. Uh, It seems like it's going to be pretty interesting. Uh, I backed it without reading the Kickstarter page, so... Hopefully, that's not a bad thing. You should probably read things before you kickstart them, is what I'm saying right now. I will mostly pick up the PDF. I can't back it right now because uh, Essen Spiel is coming up, so I have to um, keeping money for that. Right on, yeah. Gotta pick and choose, pick and choose. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've I had a, a brief look at the, um, the document that's up because as with all... Of these wonderful Kickstarters, the uh, the full text is well, pretty much the full text is up to look at. So, um, yeah, that's pretty neat. Uh, Mike, have you looked through that a lot? No, as I mentioned, I I did not read the Kickstarter page, so I didn't even know that the free document was there. <laughs> oh right, okay. Well, <laughs> I should I should probably check that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The deluxe um, hard copy uh, does look like it's going to be a fantastic product, though. It looks really, really wicked. Oh, right, right. That's that's correct. I have one gripe about this. Because while I didn't read the text, I did look at the pictures, guys. All right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and I did notice that the physical book has Celtic knots on it. And then all the uh, little headers on the Kickstarter also have Celtic knots. And, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to just give Rich Thomas a hard time, you know. Because <laughs> the new Dark Ages vampire is trying to be really inclusive and look at look and expand beyond just Dark Ages Europe and really look at the entire world. And then what do they go for with the, uh, the headers and some of the graphic design? The Celtic knot. Ah. What is this, mm. Changeling the Dreaming Chig? <laughs> no, as we all know, there were no Changelings in the Dark Ages. Don't that's, be silly, that's Mike. That's true. There was only Dark Ages Fae. Ugh. Mm. Right, but moving on, uh, two <laughs> other books did come out. Uh, which are available on DriveThruRPG, which is Demon Interface and the Demon Seeds Collection, both uh, mm. created through the Demon the Descent Kickstarter. So both pretty cool. Uh, I have not checked them out yet because I am pretty far behind on the uh, Demon the Descent books. So uh, yeah, it's going to be a little while to get back on track on that. I have my vouchers for them from the Kickstarter. And like I said, I'm reading Flowers <laughs> of Hell right now. So um, yeah, I do need to delve into those. Indeed, well, indeed. Interface, so if you have questions, I can mm. help. Well, perhaps you could just give us a quick two-minute uh, introduction on what is in the Demon Interface uh, collection. Um, so the Demon Interface collection um, is a collection of short stories. So there's a lot of different fiction that takes on different aspects of Demon, but each short story has with it game material. Uh, sometimes it's characters that showed up in the story. Sometimes it's... Uh, new gadgets sometimes it's there's even one uh new role that you can play all together um and so there's there's a lot of different material in there that you can use uh throughout your games whether you want some new npcs or you want to broaden things out even a little further um i think it's a actually a fantastic anthology i was incredibly pleased with the quality of the fiction that we got for it Mm. now michelle with your editorial eye, do you think this is going to be a, a new trend we're going to see with Onyx Path uh, books and, and fiction? If it does well, I'd say that your odds are pretty good. 
You know, one of the things about anthologies that is rough is we all love to do them, but not everyone has that same love for game fiction as the writers mm-hmm. do, you know? Um, so so we, we love to put out the fiction. We love to develop the world. Um, and some people really like that, but some people just want something they can use in their game. This is a nice opportunity to blend the two, um, and I think it works particularly well for the World of Darkness lines. I really like the idea because um, I think, like with the God Machine Chronicles um, anthology, that's again, I, I thought was really great because it had lots of good story seeds. So having a yeah. bit of, you know, mechanics or ideas in there to help with that is really good because sometimes you get a game where you just need a few more things to show you what you could use, you know, at the table. And if you've got both a short story and the rules to go with it to kind of kick you off and get something rolling, that's um, incredibly useful. So I'm quite happy with that. I'm looking forward to read that now. Um, yeah, excellent. All right, superb, superb. And then, of course, uh, with Dark Days Radio, we've all been uh, doing a lot of stuff lately. I was, of course, uh, recently on an episode of Midnight Express, the classic World of Darkness podcast, where we talked about Midnight Siege, which is a pretty good uh, Vampire the Masquerade source book. About, it was a uh, really good episode, too, Mike. Mm, yes. oh, was it? Thanks, guys. Yeah, I just listened to it yesterday. It was fantastic. Yeah, all right. Good, good. And, of course, Chris, you were on GM Jam. What were you talking about there? Uh, we were talking about Changeling the Lost. And, uh, yeah, we covered a lot of stuff. Um, it was really good. I mean, um, yeah, there was a lot of content about how to run it. We didn't touch half the stuff we could have tried to have uh, to have talked about because it just would have gone on for hours and hours. Um, because Changeling the Lost as a core book is jam-packed with a lot of content so um yeah it was really good really good fun and uh just nice to have nice things said about my changeling setting um so yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely chris that was an interesting episode uh simply because it differed a lot from other game introductions because you didn't focus on the splats you really just talked about the core uh conceits of the setting and really mm-hmm. what it meant to be a changeling rather than focusing on the cool powers and, and stuff like that. And I definitely appreciated that. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the things why I say there was so much content to do because with changeling, you could talk about powers and contracts and then you've got pledges and you could go on about that and then you've got dreams and you go on about that and then you've got goblin markets. And for a starting player or a starting uh, storyteller, that's a lot of stuff. So boiling it down to really what is the core experience was i think the uh and really what kind of setting you could use was the was the main um ultimately was the main focus of that show and then chig chig you were on another show what was up with that i was on hitting on threes which is a pod a a wargaming podcast that uh my friend other bryce uh hosts uh we discussed a uh, kickstarter that uh we both are looking forward to uh, for Carthoon, Lands of Conflict, uh, done by Tracy Barnett and uh, Brian Patterson of D20 Monkey Comics. It's a uh, Kickstarter for a uh, multi-system RPG setting that they are running, and it looks super fun. So we had them on, and we talked about it for a little while. Mm. Cool. 
Awesome. And then all of us were on Twisted Tales, where there was a brief little interview where we discussed Darker Days. So we'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right, but that's enough about us. Let's move on over to the next segment, and let's talk to Michelle a little bit about, you know, role-playing games. Topics of highbrow storytelling. Michelle, how's it going? How are you? It's great. It sounds like we're all doing a lot of stuff lately. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But let's not talk about the present. Let's talk about the past. <laughs> all right, let's, let's kind of establish your geek cred a little bit. How did you get started with role-playing games? Um, well, when I first started with role-playing games, it actually didn't go very well. I got uh, a friend loaned me the Red Box back when I was in, like, fourth grade. But I grew up in a very small town, and nobody else knew what it was, and I couldn't get anybody interested in it. So I, I, I was like a proto-role player, and it didn't happen. And then it happened finally uh, freshman year of college. Um, my boyfriend was a GM. And so I started playing in the way that many people, many women in particular, used to come to the hobby, uh, primarily through one's, you know, significant other. Um, but then it just, you know, I loved it. And so that kind of was the beginning of a thing that never really stopped. Okay, that sounds pretty good. So what, what sort of games were you into uh, back in those days? Was it a little bit of everything or? Second edition advanced D&D. Uh, the classic. Uh, yeah, my first game with that uh, ran six years. Uh, that we were in. So that was, that was a big portion of it. Um, which, so I started out mostly with fantasy stuff. Um, and then Shadowrun, uh, was another early love that we ended up playing a lot. Um, and that kind of got me out of fantasy a little bit and into some other type of genres. Let's see what else, Feng Shui, all those kinds of games that were out, um, in the, the early nineties. Uh, you know, that was, that was a lot of the stuff that we played for a very long time. Um, and that actually got me into my first, uh, role-playing job in the industry. So that kind of transitioned to there. Great. And that was awesome setup for the next question. How'd you start writing and editing RPGs? So I was an English major, uh, in college. The, the first time I went to college, I didn't get all the way through cause life intervened like it does. Um, but I thought it would be really nice if I did something with my English training and I saw that FASACorp had an ad up for freelance editors and I thought, well, I'd like to be a freelance editor and so I'll send it in. Um, and we talked back and forth for a while. They never did send me anything freelance to do, but they invited me in for an interview. Uh, so I flew up to Chicago and I got lost on the L and I ended up like not far from the office. So I just walked in. And they, we, uh, we talked about it, and they hired me on the spot, and I started my first editing job in-house at FASA. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the L, man, tell you what. Uh, so I worked there for almost a year, um, and I was coming up on my yearly anniversary when they shut their doors. <laughs> so, so that ended that, and then I jumped into freelancing, and I was there for another... Freelancing is my primary uh, job for, gosh, yeah, four years, for four years. And then I got on full-time with WotC, uh, in, editing in D&D R&D. So that third edition, man, I was there, 3.5, I can tell you. Nice, nice. Can we, can we take just a little side tangent right here? Sure. Because I might be a big FASA fan. 
might be just a little bit. <laughs> and there was a lot of crazy stuff going on those last couple of years at uh, at Fast. You know, you had yes. Bore out, you had Crimson Skies, Crucible. Yes. They were pumping out a lot of games. So yes, I was just kind of curious what the what the general feel was. Uh, was it was it really a uh, kind of a supplement treadmill that was going on, or were there just a lot of really passionate people with a lot of cool ideas for new games? Um, well, I think that it's fair to say it was both. I mean, you have to look back at the way the industry worked, you know, in the early to mid nineties, um, which, which really was for the established houses. It was a supplement treadmill. I mean, there was a joke in the office that, you know, the only thing we had left to do for Shadowrun was the tax code. And then we were going to have to figure out, you know, (laughs) something else to do. The tax code supplement was coming. Uh, so, so, you know, there, we had a lot of supplements out for third edition Shadowrun, um, and that they continued to put out after everything changed hands. Um, Battletech was still in its prime, so that was going well. Um, Crucible, of course, was their fantasy minis game that they were trying to get off the ground, um, and they had their partnership with Ral Partha, uh, who's now Ironwind, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, yep. and, and the minis were so cool, but trying to get people into a new game at that point was difficult coming up against uh, Games Workshop and, <laughs> and that kind of thing. Um, and it was a major, you know, it wasn't a, a small-scale minis game. So there was a lot of investment going on there. Um, Vor was great and huge and you could play Space Gorillas and that was amazing. Um, and we had a lot of people who were interested in that, but again... That had the problem of running into difficulties getting the books out. We had problems with writers. We had problems with with personnel, just having things come up and and delaying product. And so that was difficult. Um, And then we had Crimson Skies, which actually wasn't ours. Um, It was licensed from Microsoft. So it had gone with, either had been acquired by or gone with uh, the rest of the electronic rights from FASA when uh, Microsoft acquired the computer game rights. And then we had to license it back to put out the minis game, which was sort of half role-playing, half minis game. It was kind of a weird hybrid. So there was a lot of stuff going on. And it was kind of at the point where they were trying to figure out what to do next. They were trying to figure out how to how to make everything come together and make a viable income stream. And that was also when the price of paper had started going up. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of people in the building. Everybody was hustling. Um, and it was a printing group from a long way back. Um, it had actually once been, uh, before it got changed to FASA, um, it was Sparrow Press, which a lot of people hadn't heard of, but it was kind of one of those small uh, indie printing you know, companies back in the day, and they published a lot of Anainin's work. They brought a lot of things over from Europe that otherwise didn't get out. Uh, so it was kind of a weird, uh, you know, lit thing. And then it switched over, and then the, the Wisemans bought it, and they ended up doing that for a while and then switching over to role-playing games. Uh, so it was, <laughs> they really didn't want to let that go. Um, but Jordan at that point was already out with Microsoft. Um, so you know, their attention was kind of split in a way, I think, um, even as we were trying to get everything together. And eventually they just decided to shut it down, I think, to in part to resolve that attention split and in part to make sure that they could go out and have everybody paid. And I appreciated that hugely. Um, that was a really classy way to make sure that they got out of this and couldn't get into something else and not leave people on the hook. So, All right. 
definitely respectable. Interesting. So, um, <laughs> sorry, that's a little longer than I think I've <laughs> No, it's cool. It's very informative. I definitely appreciate it. Now, of course, you started off with, with FASA, went over to Watsi, and now, you know, White Wolf Onyx Path uh, has, has hired you quite a bit. So how, how has the editing process really changed? You know, I understand you still have to uh, redline and all of that, but could you kind of discuss um, part of the evolution that's gone on over the last couple of years, uh, especially with the, you know, switch to more digital and all that? Um, well, one of the biggest changes, I think, is that there are a few places where in-house still exists, you know, where you've got everybody in the same building and you're sending files back and forth and you can walk over to somebody's desk. You know, Watsi still has that. Um, but I'm not sure. I, Paizo still has that. But, I, but not many other places do. And so that means that, you know, developers, writers, layout people, everybody's everywhere. Everybody's freelance and contracting. Um, and that makes things random in ways that you didn't have when you actually had a building that everybody was in. Um, I'm not going to say that it's worse, but it's definitely different um, because you have to track people down. You have to make sure that you have some kind of, uh, you know, everybody using the same platform or at least things that are compatible. Um, you know, and some of that was always there because we always would freelance out our writing, um, no matter where you were. You just didn't have enough people in-house to do all of it, and it would be a bad idea anyway. Um, but having everybody send in all of their stuff now means that there's a lot more, I think, coordination that has to happen. There's a lot more coordination ahead of time um, in terms of writing lists, um, emails that go back and forth, chat sessions, that kind of thing. Uh, to help get everything, you know, kind of managed in advance so that you're not having to try and scramble to fit it all together afterwards. So White Wolf, White Wolf used to have some trouble with editors. <laughs> not going to lie. Not going to lie about it. What, what do you do when you're when you're editing a source book or something like that to really focus on, you know, removing all those page XXs and uh, strange <laughs> references and all that? What, what are your, some of your uh, your tips and tricks? Um, well, the page XXs, oddly enough, don't come to me because usually um, because those are set up in layout and they should be dealt with there. And then they go into the galleys that you look at when you're doing the final proof that tends to go to the developer. I have occasionally looked at it and I'm, you know, I'm giving you the process, but this is going to vary from company to company. But at White Wolf, that seems to be how it goes. Um, but that being said, um, one of the best things that I do in terms of you know, making sure that I'm on board, that I know what all the terms are, that I'm going to be able to spot something if it's wrong, is I stay involved with the writing list. I get in on the process early so that I know what people are talking about. I can see the docs. I can listen in on the conversations and offer feedback if I don't think something's going to work from an editing and readability perspective. Um, and that way, I'm not coming to it blind, like so many editors had to do over the years. Um, I think that's one way in which the process has really improved so that the editor is a part of the team from the beginning and not just somebody it's farmed out to halfway through. Um, so that's a big thumbs up for me on that. Um, I think additionally, you know, so my husband, of course, is Matthew McFarland. Um, I know where he is. I can go find him and stand next to his desk and talk to him about things. That's really <laughs> handy. I can't lie. Um, 
And, uh, and so I and we work well together. So I enjoy working with him. But I also enjoy working with Rose. I enjoy working with Dave Brookshaw. Um, you know, making sure that that I've worked on enough products that I've developed relationships with the developers. So I know the game. I know what they're doing with it. I can get a hold of them and ask them a question if I need to. I can tell them if I think something's wrong or if something's really right, so that I can actually get feedback to them to go back to the writers with the red lines on these are things you can work on. These are things you're doing really well. Let's work on this to kind of finesse and, and professionalize this writing. Um, and so that's a, an awesome, you know, that's the best part of the old in-house process right there. And we've managed through our working relationships to replicate that. And so that that's awesome. And one of the things that I really love about working with White Wolf or Onyx Path these days. Yeah, definitely. I, I can definitely see uh, there's that, two to three year period where uh, White Wolf was using a lot of uh, uh, their editors from scribendi.com. Yes. And yes. that uh, definitely caused, uh, especially in mechanical sections, uh, some uh, issues with the text. So uh, I definitely think it's good to have people that really kind of know what's going on, at least understand role-playing games uh, doing the editing. Well, it's a technical process, you know? I mean, it's in a lot of ways, editing uh, you know, an RPG is like editing a textbook. You want it to be readable. You want it to be easily referenced. You want it to be clear on all of its technical aspects. But instead of dealing with you know, computer stuff or engineering, you're dealing with vampires and blood draining and werewolves changing form. And for some people, if they're not familiar with it, that really throws them off. Um, and so you want to get somebody that's invested in the line that has familiarity with it and, you know, cares enough or is, a is able really to ask. And when you go through an agency like that, it's really hard to line up all of those things together. Okay, cool. I just noticed a, a gross negligence with our questions here. We really didn't discuss the overall editing process. Uh, I think that might be pretty informative because <laughs> I don't think we've really discussed that here on the show before. Uh, okay. so Michelle, could you kind of just... Uh, you know, you you got the text, got the the rough draft from the uh, from the writer, and then what kind of a process or steps does it go through? Um, well, the first thing I have to say is that every company has a different process. You think things would be more streamlined, but they're not. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the way Onyx Path works, um, and make that specific to that, since that's kind of a focus of of what we're we're doing on this podcast. Um, so the way that it works is the rough draft comes in from the authors. It goes to the developer. The developer goes through it um, and offers red lines, says, we're going to use this, we're not going to use this, rewrite that, this is good, don't ever do that thing again, uh, you know, depending on who you're working with, um, and sends it back, right? And so then the second draft comes in with the changes and the red lines that the developers put in, and then it comes to the editor. Now, some companies will want the editor to do just basically a proofreading pass. They only want like grammar stuff, commas, that kind of thing. Some companies really want you to get into it and do a content edit so that you're looking for things that don't mesh up in the system, that don't work right. You reverse engineer the mechanics and you make sure. Um, with Onyx Path, a lot of what we do is sort of a light content edit. The developer has worked closely enough with the text that they should have checked the, you know, the stats and made sure that everything adds up, which is not to say don't look at it, but more to say that I don't have to spend my whole time doing all the formulas to make sure that all the stats work. Um, so that's kind of where it is. I'm doing, of course, a copy edit um, and organizing the text for readability 
and commenting on things that I don't think work and seeing if we can cut them or get them redone. Um, all of those things go into it. So it's not just a copy edit. It's more comprehensive than that, but not a full content edit because the developer should have already done that. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, once that's done, I give it back to the developer. Um, and then the developer goes through if he has any questions or if I've given him any notes, um, he or she, then uh, we figure that out and then it goes to layout. So that's kind of what the editing process is like. Um, I do most of my editing in Word just because it's kind of a universal format at this point. And because depending on the book, I can do use track changes and mm -hmm. make comments and, and that seems to work. Now that's a feature of a lot of things these days, but also working in Word or something like that as opposed to working, say, in Google Docs helps me keep the revisions clear so yes. that I don't accidentally overwrite something that was there before and I have a I have my versioning that's set up. Yeah, I, I, I can see that because um, like I like using Google Docs uh, for some stuff because it's obviously everyone can just log into it. But Word, uh, I think Word has improved a lot because obviously um, uh, throughout PhD and uh, well, degree PhD in my previous uh, research position, uh, we used Word and, you know, track, track changes has pretty much been uh has i feel has evolved whereas currently yes. currently it, it sometimes it's great and sometimes it's a pain in the ass <laughs> um is obviously writing and editing in latex and um it's it's wonderful because you get great layout like really good but you know to track your changes you know, you're writing a paper as if you're coding a paper and it's not sure. very obvious what the changes are. So, um, yeah, I, I, I totally get, you know, I'd rather work with Word. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, by the time you something hits layout and you're looking at that, you don't want to be making a lot of edits because no, no. you don't want to change the flow too much. You don't, you know, you should be have all of that dealt with before you ever get into InDesign or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, because um, I, I, I have a bit of insight, or I'm, I'm slowly getting more insight from my own line developer for Fading Suns right now. So oh, um, I, I, get, I get some insight there. So <laughs> some. Uh, and obviously, yeah, we're trying to, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. I think I will make sure this podcast goes to him because then we might, you know, obviously pick up some tips and tricks or things that we should adopt. So. That's oh, cool. Wonderful. Yes, happy to help with your process. That's awesome. Yes, yes. Cool. Uh, what's the next question, Mike? Is there anything else to ask about the editing process? No, I think, I think we're pretty good with the editing process. Yeah. I think we got some good insight there. But, uh, Michelle, let's do some little, little role-playing, okay? Okay. Okay? All right, Michelle. The house is burning. Okay. okay. No, no, don't don't worry. The kids are okay. The pets are okay. Valuables are all, are all safe. Except... For the role-playing game room, all right. Oh. All the bookcases in there. Oh no! They're burning down. Okay. You've ah. got two hands. Two hands. Okay. Okay. Your right hand can grab a regular RPG book, and your left hand can grab a World of Darkness book. That's all you can grab. Oh. What do you go for? Oh, oh, that's hard, man. Okay, so for World of Darkness book, I think I'm going to have to get Demon the Descent Ooh. because I'm kind of in love with that game. 
I don't know for sure if I can say that it is my all-time favorite World of Darkness book, but it's really close. And I'm I'm kind of yeah I can't anyway. So that's that. That's that. Um, oh, from the other one, from the other one. <sighs> the house is burning. I know. Despite its easy replaceability, I think I have to get Fate or Atomic Robo. It's it's a toss up. Those are both excellent decisions. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I fake Dresden Files in fake core, but it's hard to do it the other way, and I really like where they've gone with the, the new edition. So. Okay. I think that's respectable. That's respectable. Thank you. The next question is uh, World of Darkness Innocence, which I have actually, Mike, you wrote this question because I have to admit, I just realized I haven't read this book. So, um, so the question, yeah, I know I, I should really get around to it. Um, so the question is, which specific sections did you contribute within this book? Um, yeah. Okay. Um, well, I had, I went and looked at it, um, again, cause I wanted to prepare and, and be sure what we were doing. Um, and I wrote some of the portions of the first chapter, specifically an essay on kids in horror. Okay. And then I wrote some of the fiction um, that showed up. I wrote the sec the uh, back and forth with the principal about writing to the parents about the kid who's having trouble, and then I wrote the uh, Santa letter from Sahara. Okay, I think actually now I think about it, I really do need to pick up this one because I think um, you know going back to what we were talk I was saying about changing the lost. I think it would be quite informative for me for possibly you know running flashbacks for characters yeah. as I've taken. I think that would be pretty cool. Yes. Okay, cool. I'm really pleased with the way Innocence came out. It's, it's you know, you don't think of being able to run child characters in the world of darkness. Um, it, on the face of it, it seems like kind of a bad plan. But this book makes it work. Um, and it makes it work in a way that doesn't have to take the game into a space that makes everybody deeply uncomfortable. Um, you know, it, it, it brings it down to a kid level. And, and that's one of the things that I really like about it. Cool. Okay. Uh, Mike, do you have any particular points you want to bring up on that book? Because you seem more informed on this one than I am. Uh, I mean, just talking about it generally, it's one of those kind of interesting artsy uh, White Wolf, or yeah, it was White Wolf book at the time, um, mm -hmm. which you know, was, was done, I, I feel, kind of in an artistic manner, but then comes out and it's a, a great and very playable book, you know, similar mm. to um, even even the uh, the Wraith book, uh, The Shao, The Charlotte Houses of Europe, where you'd think like, uh oh, this could be trouble, but no, it comes out very well. Yeah, I think it's up there, I think, thinking about it again, it's um, it's with another book, which I really do need to, to dive into, is uh, World's Darkness uh, Asylum. So again, you know, another book where the, the the content has to be approached in a very particular manner, or else it just be, you know, just <laughs> really bad. <laughs> so, um, uh, and and considering I've been watching a lot of Hannibal recently, um, I really should look into World of Darkness Asylum because because uh, I like I like Chilton, I like Chilton from Hannibal, so um, it would inform me on his thought processes. Cool. The next question is, what can you, um, Michelle, what can you reveal about the writing and development of Splintered City Seattle? 
to brief for the people who haven't read Demon the Fallen. Uh, sorry, Demon the Descent. Demon the Fallen. Demon the Descent. Um, <laughs> Splint, uh, Seattle is quite an interesting city setting for Demon because it has these uh, overlaid alternate timelines. Um, and so obviously this is going to be a big feature of this, uh, of this uh, book. Yes. I got to write the Seattle chapter for Demon the Descent, and I was so thrilled to do it. Um, I lived in Seattle for six years, and I love Seattle. Um, I still miss it occasionally. Um, I still have family there that I go visit. So so I really enjoyed it. And when, I, when they chose Seattle to be the city, I'm like, I got to do this. And I decided I wanted to do something really weird with it because city... City chapters in, in the core books, sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're just kind of there. Um, and I really wanted to do something different. And they backed me on it. And so we had the timeline splinters. And I got to play with uh, 1889, 1932, 1962, and 1999, um, in addition to the main timeline, uh, so, <laughs> which is a lot of fun. So we've got, uh, we've got right before the Great Fire, we've got Hooverville in the 30s and uh, the Japanese-Americans. Um, and then we've got uh, the Seattle World's Fair, uh, and then we've got Y2K mm-hmm. and the riots. Uh, so <laughs> there, was, there was a lot that happened at various points, and it was really fun to get to play with those and see what they'd be like um, as a demon to explore, to possibly you know take over, to integrate in, um, to get things from. That was, that was a lot of fun. Um, and then when we got to do the city book, and then I got to write with that. That was fantastic because, um, yes, more, more. Um, and so my, I got two co-authors, um, one of whom lived in Seattle um, and one who was at least a West Coaster and knew some about Seattle, even though he didn't live there. Um, and we just kind of divvied it up. We got into more detail about the various splinters. Um, we talked about, you know, adding in uh, some new characters um, adding in some new abilities. Um, there's a lot of good material there that people can bring into their games if they want to play with the splinters and with Seattle more. The splintered timeline thing, I mean, uh, I think this is this, this kind of says a lot about the uh, Demon Descent uh, setting uh, and game in general. It just also made me go, oh, wow, that's awesome for <laughs> so many other World of Darkness games as well. Like, a bunch of majors that, that i mean that city book i think can be used for for many yes. different other games and that's always good to have that extra kind of added value yes i i one of the things that i really loved about getting to do it is that there's so much that you can do with it and yet the nature of it is that unless you really want it to break the world it doesn't mm-hmm. um and and I, I like that. I like that there can be something weird, something that hasn't shown up elsewhere in the world of darkness um, that you can play with without making it break everything. Cool. Uh, Mike, you got anything to say about Demon there with the splintered city? Nope. Uh, Chick? <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. There's a self-hating um, Starbucks. It's awesome. 
How does that differ from any other Starbucks? Uh, yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, so finally for this segment, um, unless there's some other questions I've that anyone else has uh, thought up. Um, what's next uh, for Onyx Path or that in particular that you're uh, working on currently? Um, well, like I said earlier, currently I'm helping to play test uh, Promethean Second Edition. Really, the second editions um, mm -hmm. are, are the big thing. We've already got um, the Vampire one out, um, and that's yeah. going to be renamed to Vampire Second Edition, but the content isn't going to change terribly much. Um, and then there's Werewolf and Mage and Promethean, and who knows what else is going to be out there. Um, they're currently in playtesting. Um, I know that I am not going to be editing Mage, um, but I'm probably going to be editing Promethean and maybe Werewolf. It depends on when they hit in the schedule. I'm really excited. I love the God Machine rules. I love the way that it lets us change the world of darkness. Um, so that it, it mixes things up. You can take the parts that you like out of it. Um, you don't have to take everything. It doesn't have to be all changed into some weird elder eldritch machine thing. Um, but it, it gives it an aura of the unexpected. Um, and it really lets us play with things. And I think that that's really, you know, that's everything you could hope for out of a new edition of a game and that it, you can do everything you could do before. Plus you can have the unexpected. You can have a twist. Mm -hmm. And and I think that that's fantastic. So I'm very excited. Cool. Yeah, because um, because uh, well, Mike and myself and my friend James, we played through uh, we've played through using the God Machine Chronicles. So we put mm -hmm. that as an actual play. And Mike, I think rule system wise, I think the conditions and everything helped as a kind of a good nudge mechanic for how we were playing. Yes. Uh, oh yeah. While I've yet to run it, I will be using uh, Blood and Smoke for my uh, third season of my uh, vampire setting. And I think, um, I mean, because this came up in topic of conversation today as well with certain things. Um, I think Blood and Smoke did exactly what Vampire the Requiem needed, which was to distill a lot of all the good ideas over the last, you know, eight, nine years into that core book because... Compared to the original Requiem, um, Blood and Smoke has definitely got more of a character now, I feel. Yes. Um, that's more distinct. Obviously, I'm, I'm really keen on seeing how the condition system works for, um, uh, works for pledges in Changeling when that finally yes. turns up. And of, of course, the way the uh, integrity uh, system uh, works with, say, um, for Werewolf. Obviously, and uh, especially for Promethean, actually, um, it should be quite interesting to see how that works in combination with um, all the other stuff in Promethean. <laughs> um, I can't talk too much yeah. about. It. I can tell you that you know there 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 are some aspects with Promethean that were difficult for me when I tried to play it before, um, in terms of getting a direction for my character, in terms of of how does this all work together, and how does it make sense, and the play test that I'm going through has resolved a lot of that for me. I'm really having a good time with it. It's, it's given me a whole new direction with my character. Suddenly I understand what I'm going to do and what I'm trying to do. Um, and I think that, that that alone, you know, mm -hmm. the, the fact that it's refined the game experience to that extent um, is fantastic. And I'm really excited to see it. That's very good news. 
Cool. <laughs> um, uh, guys, anything else you want to ask on that? Or does that cover uh, the future of Onyx Path right now? Yeah, it sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty good. I mean, yeah. we could try to ask some questions about Beast, but I don't know how far <laughs> we're going to get. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't think we're going to get very far with that one. Um, Probably not. You'll have to have me back another time for that. Okay. Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, so I guess, does that bring us up to the end of the segment? Should we move on to the secret frequency? Yeah, I think so. Let's do it. <laughs> 1950s New York City Times Square looks much as it did today. A cacophony of neon lights, flashing billboards, device advertisements. As a place that stands as a testament to capitalism and industry, it should come as no surprise that one of America's strangest deaths happened here at 11.15 p.m. on June 15, 1950. A man appeared in Times Square's intersection. Witnesses described him as disoriented and confused, with a wardrobe wholly out of place. His clothing was early Victorian, with a tall hat and broad necktie. Onlookers didn't say a thing to him, he was only alive a few seconds, and he didn't even have time to scream as he was hit by an oncoming taxi. The morgue reported nothing strange with the man's cause of death, the impact of the car did it to him. Otherwise, he was perfectly healthy, a man in his 20s, with an odd costume and strange contents in his pockets. The police report and mortician's notes confirmed the following five items in his pockets. A copper token for a beer worth five cents, bearing the name of a saloon which was unknown even to older residents of the area. A bill for the care of a horse and the washing of a carriage drawn by a livery stable on Lexington Avenue that was not listed in any address book. About $70 in old banknotes, a business card with the name Rudolph Fence, and an address on Fifth Avenue. And finally, a letter sent to this address in June 1876 from Philadelphia. The case of identifying the body was given to Captain Ream of the NYPD Missing Persons Department. The dead man's fingerprints did not come across anywhere, and uh, Rudolph Fence was not in any address book. And finally, there was no resident like him in the Fifth Avenue apartments. Rim continued to investigate and finally found a Rudolph Fence Jr. in a telephone book from 1939. Rim spoke to the residents of the apartment building at the address listed, uh, who actually remembered Fence, and described him as a man about 60 years of age who had worked nearby. Uh, contacting a bank, Rim was told that Fence died five years before, but his widow was still alive, uh, lived down in Florida. There, uh, he learned that her husband's father had disappeared in 1876, age 29. He had left the house for an evening walk, but never returned. For years, the case of Rudolph Fence was declared a hoax inspired by a short story called I'm Scared by uh, author Jack Finney. It was originally published in 1951. That was until, of course, researchers began to find articles describing the incident exactly as you understand it today, 
an automobile death at 11.15 on June 15, 1950, the victim of which should not exist. So, in the world of darkness, who could Rural Fence be, and what could this death mean? Rural Fence could, of course, uh, be a mage making a quick getaway with the Time Sphere. His death will, of course, attract modern tradition mages to investigate, leading them to Lost Arcana of the Victorian era. In Mage of the Awakening, perhaps Rudolph Fence never existed in our timeline. Articles describing his death may have leaked over from an alternate timeline via the uh, machinations of the Prince of Hundred Thousand Leaves. Rudolph could be uh, a recently awakened Risen uh, of the Wraith setting. After being hit by the car, perhaps his body is moved to the public cemetery on Hart Island. Once he rises again, Rudolph will need to track down the items he lost from his pockets, which would be his various fetters. So there you have it, guys. Uh, what do you think? Any ideas for how you could use this uh, strange story in your Ward of Darkness games? The obvious start is uh, for Changing the Lost. Um, he walked through a verge and did not realize the time dilation effect. And this verge, uh, it represents a doorway between the two timelines. So it may potentially, for certain changelings, offer a way to go back and in some some way prevent uh, themselves being taken by the Fae. Um, ooh, let's think. Obviously, for, for Demon, the Descent, this could be some sort of fallout of, uh, of an infrastructure. And so this, um, this fellow, uh, this uh, Rudolf Fence, uh, he's a, um, a stigmatic, uh, and so he obviously displays his interaction with uh, the the god machine and its uh, machinations. He could be, if you want to get even crazier, um, and given some stuff that's coming up for Victorian Age Mage, what if he's a clone for Mage the uh, Ascension? He is a a rare example of uh, of early work by a a. Uh, a cabal that is a would go on to form the core of the progenitors. Um, so it kind of gives, or, or maybe he's um, maybe he's a uh, by some means is a Promethean. Um, so obviously he died, and only recently by some means his body was preserved and his body has been used uh, to create Promethean. Um, also, if he's been dead for that long, maybe he got embalmed and was uh, brought back as a mechat. Um, yeah, that's me tapped out. He's an ecstatic mage. Come on. He shows up in New York and Times Square with a token for beer and a bunch of money in his uh, pocket. He's out for a good time. He, <laughs> he, tri he trips through time and he wakes up 70 years later. Clearly, he's an ecstatic mage. I believe it can happen. Okay. I was going to say that he was a demon who had gotten trapped in an oubliette and only managed to get out, and that was his uh, cover. Okay. That's, uh, it's not a very good cover, is it? Well, it was when he got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Michelle, uh, yeah. if your Promethean character heard about this in your Promethean playtest game that we can't learn anything about, right. what would she do? What would she think? Hmm. 
Well, that would actually be interesting because she's she's figuring out that she needs to maybe learn more about uh, about the whole Promethean condition, uh, and so she would she would be interested in going and checking it out. Of course, that family that got left behind, you know, they're gone now, but, you know, that's a weird thing. So maybe there's some connection there. Ah, uh, yes, with the family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there could be something going on there. Perhaps this is a, a repeating event for this family, a curse, if you will. That yeah. could be something interesting. Because we don't know, did Rudolph Fence Jr. actually die? Maybe he disappeared mm-hmm. himself. That's true. Mm. It could be a, an interesting thing to interact with. Either, you know, you've always got the classic kind of sci-fi thing of, you know, you go back and try and prevent it and you actually cause it, you know, classic kind of pogo effect type uh, uh, time travel uh, scenario. But it would be more interesting if you tried to go back and solve it and prevent it, but actually you cause more harm than good. So it's actually, it's almost like this, uh, this... Temp, uh, this temporal kind of uh, paradox or, or um, effect is, is some sort of uh, lock on some other uh, grander uh, time travel kind of spell slash experiment slash scenario, uh, series of events that would then actually occur. So if you save him, he actually causes the world to change in, in far more horrific uh, ways. I like it. I like it. And you know what? I think that's it for today on The Secret Frequency. So let's hop on over to uh, our next segment, talking about chill. All right, Michelle, let's let's talk about chill a little bit. Yes. I hear, I hear it's the most laid-back RPG in the entire business. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an interesting description. <laughs> Um, the most laid-back RPG, man. Um, say more about that. How How do you mean? Uh, because it's called chill, and yeah, oh, you just got you gotta chill out. Chill. Oh, sorry, it's <laughs> no, it's okay. Day. Um, all right. So, so yeah, chill. Yeah, it's it's well. I wouldn't exactly say that it's chill. It's chill third edition, um, which means that it's got some scary to it. Um, so chill. Let me give you a little bit of the history of Chill. Um, so Chill was initially written back in the 80s. And it was really kind of the first horror RPG um, that was out there, certainly that had any traction. Um, and it was done by a company called Pace Setter. Um, and their their take on Chill was very much uh, kind of the old Hammer horror B-movie kind of things. Um, they had two or three supplements that you know had elvira as the host of them um it was <laughs> it was a, a more wacky horror kind of thing does that if that makes sense um kind of yep. tales from the crypt ish mm-hmm. um, in flavor and then in the mid 90s um the mayfair got the rights to chill um and bought it and they put out a new edition and that was a much more serious horror game it was a mid-90s game, which means, you know, it's a percentile roll under system. There were a lot of, of subsystems that were in there. Um, it had the full set of standard 
RPG rules for combat and falling and swimming and all those things that, that went into all of those games, right? The full uh, equipment list, all that kind of thing. Um, and it did, you know, it did pretty well for some time. Um, really, the line only ended when Mayfair ended all of their uh, RPGs and got out of that business entirely because you know, they did fine, but they weren't making Catan money. And it was kind of a no-brainer for them to focus on their board games rather than their RPG business. Um, at that point, it kind of went into limbo for a while. Um, other world games started to put out a third edition and got as far as getting a playtest kind of quick start document out, but didn't it didn't go any further than that. Um and then a gentleman in Canada named Martin Carone uh, bought the the rights from Mayfair. So he's had them. Uh, he's interested in doing some stuff with the IP. We ended up talking to him because uh, Chill was one of the first games that Matt ran. And he loved it. He ran it for like three or four years straight with a huge cast of characters grabbing whoever was available to play and and just running chill. Um, and he was interested. And so I contacted, uh, Mr. Carone and he thought we went back and forth and finally he licensed the English language rights to us. So my company, uh, growling door games is putting out a new version, third edition of chill. Um, it's fully licensed. We've got the Kickstarter running right now, and hopefully we're going to fund in the next couple of days, and then we can get on to some stretch goals. And I'm really excited. Um, so that's that's kind of the the you know getting up to speed with Chill. Absolutely, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah, uh, my first exposure to Chill was uh, when uh, Matt McFarland was on this show, Darker Days Radio, episode number six, and said that that was the book he'd save from the burning building. Oh. Fun fact. <laughs> well, and now here we are. Who would have thought? Indeed, indeed. So, uh, with Chill, what's what's the pacing of the game? Um, it, it almost sounds kind of like it has a almost sort of a, a mission based um, structure, similar to maybe like Shadowrun, where you're working with the uh, the uh, different save contacts and uh, events going on in the area. Is that correct? That's that's close. Um, so the idea with Chill is that the people, you know, the characters are just people and they've had some kind of run in with the supernatural or the unknown um, to let them know that it's out there and that they feel that they need to do something about. Um, there's an organization called save. And so save has worked, you know, they have uh, centers in various places um, across the world and their goal is to work with those people uh, who've experienced the unknown and get them together and have them go investigate things. Within the world of, of Chill, um, the unknown is out there. There are monsters in the corners. There's, you know, things in the woods. Um, there's creepy people who live in creepy old houses. And your goal is to help protect the world from them. And unlike, say, the world of darkness, in which the whole world is monstrous, um, in Chill, the whole world isn't monstrous, but some corners of it are. So you can actually make progress. You can't get rid of the unknown altogether, but you can get rid of this monster. You can save that person. Um, so that's really, you know, part of it. It's You can run it on a global scale. You can run it on a local scale. Um, but the idea is that you're these people and you're trying to accomplish something 
that's going to make things better, even if it's horrific and scary and kind of damaging to you along the way. Interesting. And, and why make a, a third edition? You know, are there particular mechanical uh, innovations that you want to uh, make with the system and uh, certain you know, story ideas that you have? Um, well, the Mayfair game is largely still available in PDF. It's been out of print a long time, but you can still, you can still get those. And one of the things that you figure out as soon as you look at those PDFs is it's very much a 90s game. Now, don't get me wrong. I played games in the 90s. I enjoyed them. They're awesome, but they're very finicky, and you can still see that they're working with, in a lot of ways, that war game basis, right? Um, they don't necessarily think about how do the mechanics contribute to a play style. Um, they tend to be fairly complicated um, in terms of system, in terms of the math that you're expected to do, um, and it doesn't always give you a good payback for the amount of work that you put into it to figure out what the system does. One of the things that we were really excited about to make a third edition is how can we take all of the things that we've learned in game design since the mid-90s and apply those to chill to really make it a distinctive play experience, um, to get rid of the stuff that we don't need while maintaining the feel of the game and that kind of, you know, 90s, we can still save the world, um, ethos that went into the game back then, um, that play experience. And I think that we're able to actually do a really good job with that. I'm, I'm incredibly pleased with the way that it's coming together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the kind of interesting system uh, mechanics that you want to put in is the chill token, right? Can you talk about that a little bit and uh, really how, that, how you've seen it affect play? Um, well, one of the things that, that's always difficult in a game like this um, you know, it's a horror game. It's in order to replicate that horror experience for players, um, you have to have something that's unpredictable, right? Because it's really hard to be scared when you're at a table and you have control. Um, the tokens kind of let us replicate that in a way that, that is easily visible um, and easy for players to get involved with without feeling overwhelmed and like they don't have any control at all. So the way the tokens work is that there's a token for each player plus two, I believe. Um, and they start out all light. So a light token um, can be used by the players. It can be flipped to dark. You can do that to sense the unknown. You can do that to keep from dying. Um, you can do that for a number of other things as well. And when you flip it to dark, then the chill master can flip a token back to light in order to have a creature use its evil way powers in order to have something random happen to you. Like your cell phone doesn't get signaled something in the environment, right? He can't make you trip and fall. Um, but he can have the lights go out suddenly, if that makes sense. Um, so it adds things that the, the chill master can do to affect the environment, to make things a little bit more random, but to keep it balanced in a way so that you're, you know that there's that trade-off, right? You're making something good happen, something unpredictable is going to happen, or, but not on a scale that you can't handle. So having them at the table really ratchets up the tension in the game experience, but in a good way. That I think. I mean, it, it's not something that makes the the play experience kind of ugh. instead. Um, it actually gets you into the game more. 
I've really enjoyed seeing the chill token work. We've play tested it at a number of tables, and it tends to be things that players kind of initially are trepidatious about. They don't know what's going to happen if they flip tokens, um, but once they realize that it doesn't mean that the chill master can kill you, you know it, that that tends to make them more willing to do it, and then that really opens up the play experience. It's a lot of fun. So we've actually already uh, discussed a lot of design elements that really differentiate, uh, say, Chill and the World of Darkness. But, mm-hmm. you know, as someone that writes for, for both games now, um, when you're looking at different horror media and uh, kind of brainstorming ideas, you know, what really stands out to you as a Chill idea as opposed to a World of Darkness idea? Well, one of the things I kind of touched on earlier a little bit is, you know, the world of darkness is about playing monsters. Even if you're hunting the monsters or you're just a regular human caught up in it, you know, you are so overpowered and you're not going to be able to to do much. And eventually you're going to get eaten or turned into a monster yourself. And that's that's kind of the core thing of the world of darkness is that you're not going to win. Right. It's it's going to be about that slide. You can get by. You can even maybe have some good things happen. But in the end, you're up against everything. Right. Whereas chill is going to be difficult. You're going to get hurt. But unlike even, say, Call of Cthulhu, um, where you're going to investigate this and you're going to try and fix it and maybe you can stave it off. But you're all going to end up in an asylum or a graveyard at the end with chill. You can survive this. And you can bring other people and, and help them survive it, too, and save them from horrible fates and being eaten by stuff um, or potentially turned into monsters themselves. Um, you can you are kind of the last stand. Um, and I think that that from a from a core ethos experience is very different. Um, you know, it's it's got kind of the monster hunter aspect to it, but it's not. But you're doing it for a different purpose. You're not just hunting monsters to hunt monsters. And you're not just hunting monsters because you are a monster. You are hunting monsters because you're going to save people. And, you know, we have the hashtag that we use on some of our, our promotional stuff of save is on your side. And that's really a big part of it. You know, save is supposed to be on people's side. So there's a hopeful aspect to it, even as it's dark. So that is really, I think, that's something that's cool. And the save is on your side thing is really, you know, save is supposed to be on your side. So there's that idea that you are kind of the last stand against this horrible thing that's out there that you aren't sure what it is, but you know you don't like it. And I think that that is a really big difference in ethos between those games. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, Chig, Chig, discussing chill right now kind of reminds me of how I sort of look at the uh, Ravenloft setting for for AD&D, where, Mm -hmm. you know, ultimately... It's, it's a bad place. There's bad people in charge. But you as a hero are, are trying to make it a better place. You know, it's your world that you're fighting for. It's the place where you've always lived uh, in the case right. of later supplements. Uh, it's just kind of interesting to me to see that uh, in a lot of ways, Chill kind of feels like a, a modern uh, setting of, of Ravenloft in a lot of ways. Uh, do, you, do you think you agree with that, Chig, and possibly Michelle? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I can see that. Or maybe a slightly less... Uh wacky version of the ghostbusters <laughs> <laughs> that's very true um i think i think the the key difference between ravenloft and chill would be that in ravenloft everything's terrible because of you know it's all set up that way it's a gothic horror setting this is a modern setting that has something threatening it 
So it's not that vampires rule everything or are awful. It's that, I mean, they are awful, but you know, what do you get? Um, but it's more that there's a threat. And so you're standing against it between the world that on its base is pretty decent and the awful thing that's out there. And I think in a way that's kind of something that we can relate to currently with uh, as much stuff that's been going on with, with terrorist threats and Lord only knows what just kind of coming up out of nowhere and finding that we have, feel like we have to take a stand in order to make it any better. Well, um, Michelle, there's obviously a, a Kickstarter going on right now, which we'll link, we'll link to in the uh, show notes. But um, what are you most excited about with this Kickstarter, uh, particularly maybe with the rules or stretch goals, anything like that? I'm excited that it looks like we're going to fund soon. Um, please help out with that. Yay. Um, I'm excited that uh, we may get to do a full color book. We haven't done a full color book before. And in our previous games, we, we tended to do soft cover digest size. Um, black and white interior, and we've made it a stretch goal to do full color, hardcover, eight and a half by eleven, you know, mainstream RPG book. Um, we've got some fantastic artists lined up, and I really want to see their stuff in print in color. It's going to be gorgeous. Um, we're also in this case, uh, if we do the full color, we're going with offset printing. Um, so we're actually going to do a, a print run, not just print on demand. Um, and that's, that's going to be an exciting thing to move towards. I would say that the other thing that I'm excited about with this is I'm excited by the possibility of getting to the box set. Um, I, and I'm excited about Midnight Syndicate too. Don't get me wrong. That's amazing that we get the chance to work with them. Um, but I have a soft spot in my heart for boxed sets and the fact that we could do one is it's like all the fangirl <laughs> stuff kind of you know it's like it's things in a box and it'll be all pretty so yeah that's the thing nice i like it oh <laughs> uh, what do you what's going to be in the box set we are looking at uh, the hardcover obviously um a set of tokens so that you can use them for the the fate or for the chill tokens and then we're still figuring out exactly what else is going to be in there, depending on, on how we fund. Um, possibilities include a chill master screen, um, which again is kind of like the, you know, it, it, it's the old school thing uh, coming back. Um, will there be dice? We're looking <laughs> at dice. Yes, there will be dice. Uh, we're getting some custom dice done if we make that. Uh, so that's exciting. Lots of exciting things. All right, Chig, Chris, do you have any other uh, basic questions about chill? Chig, I know you <sighs> used to play chill back in the day. I, I did, and um, I did enjoy it back in the day, but it has been going on 20 years, <laughs> if not longer, <laughs> since, I, since I last played chill. It's been sitting on my shelf ever since. But uh, yeah, I've grabbed the quick start. I have, yeah, because it's available to backers, and I backed on day one. Cause awesome. Of course. <laughs> uh, so one of the things that we've been hearing from people who pick up the quick start and that I'm really excited about is that it matches their memory of chill from back in the day. Right. Um, and, and so that's really cool. So I'm, I'm really excited to hear when you've had a chance to look at it, you know, and, and see what you think. Um, you should, you know, send us a message and tell me what you think because I'm looking for feedback. I absolutely will. Yay. 
All right, awesome. So I think it's time to uh, move on over to kind of the closing remarks of the show. And uh, Michelle, where can people find you? They can find me on various social media. Um, I have a Twitter account. I've got Facebook. Uh, feel free to look me up and friend me. Um, Growling Door, of course. We've got growlingdoorgames.com, which is our company website. Um, we've got the Kickstarter right now for Chill 3rd Edition on Kickstarter. Um, and I'm an admin over on RPGNet. So if you're interested in finding out more about Chill, if you're interested in getting in contact with me, or just being part of a really good gaming community, RPGNet is a great place to go. Um, yeah. All right, excellent, excellent. And of course, if anyone wants to uh, send a feedback or comments over to Darker Days Radio, you can uh, get to us uh, uh, via our email at uh, darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash darkerdaysradio. And, uh, you know, G Plus is our, our main community and all that. So definitely, uh, you know, drop us a line. We also have the blog where I sometimes, I've, I think I, um, no, I have. I wrote some reviews recently because we don't often get time to talk about it. So um, there's some other stuff there. So there's reviews of Iron Kingdom's Monsternomicon, which was out mm-hmm. recently, which is a great book. Uh, if you want monsters and more horror for Iron Kingdoms. So, yes, I think that covers everything. All right, Michelle, we have one last question for you. Okay. Okay, and this is probably the most important one in the entire show, and it's most difficult as well. If you could be a household appliance, which would you be and why? Ooh. I'd want to be like a Vitamix. Have you seen those things? They can make soup and everything. You could blend anything with that. That's power, man. (laughs) Yeah, that's quite a bit. Oh, all right. There. All right, I like it. The utility and everything. That's great. Yeah. All All purpose. Perfect. All right, that's another episode of Dark Days Radio. Good night. See ya. Night, everybody.